and welcome to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast from right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. We post our Sunday messages here each week and the occasional special announcement or series. You can visit vineyardchurch.us and select Springbrook from the menu to learn more about us or to access our audio archive. You can also subscribe to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google Podcasts. And now, here's the episode. Our scripture lesson today comes from Exodus 17, 1 through 7. At the Lord's command, the whole community of Israel left the wilderness of sin and moved from place to place. Eventually, they camped at Rephidim, and there was no water there for people to drink. So once more, the people complained against Moses, give us water to drink, they demanded. Quiet, Moses replied. Why are you complaining against me? And Why are you testing the Lord? But tormented by thirst, they continued to argue with Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt? Are you trying to kill us, our children, and our livestock with thirst? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What should I do with these people? They are ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Walk out in front of the people. Take your staff, the one you used when you struck the water of the Nile, and call some of the elders of Israel to join you. I will stand before you on the rock at Mount Sinai, strike the rock, and water will come gushing out. Then the people will be able to drink. So Moses struck the rock, and he was told, and water gushed out as the elders looked on. Moses named the plate Masa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, Is the Lord here with us or not? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I'm curious, um, and I don't need you to like show your hands, just uh, consider this question uh, hypothetically, but I wonder if anyone in this room uh, felt the presence of God in worship this morning. Like maybe you felt a little tingle or maybe like a little weepy or um, I don't know, sometimes I feel like I feel overwhelmed with like love or hope or uh, honestly, sometimes conviction or comfort. Um, maybe you raised your hands while we were singing, or maybe you wanted to, but you were just like a little bit too embarrassed. Um, or maybe I see this a lot on a Sunday morning. You were just kind of like swaying a little bit, or maybe it was just that you felt like the band picked like the most perfect song for you, like just for you this morning. Um, and as much as I'm curious about that, I am also curious about how many of you didn't. Like, I wonder how many of us in the room didn't feel anything really this morning. Or, or maybe you did feel something, but it was more tired than it was tingles. Um, or maybe distracted. Or <clears throat> maybe you were just like uh, uncomfortable uh, or bored. Um, I don't know. Uh, but I do. Okay, so I have a follow-up question uh, for those. Whether you felt something in worship this morning or you didn't, I wonder why... Uh, that is like, why is it that you felt something or why did you not feel anything at all? Like if you felt something during worship, uh, why? Like, what is the reason for it? Was it uh, because of Daniel? Because he picked the songs this week. Uh, and I think he's incredible. Maybe it was him or was it the band? Because they sounded amazing. Was it God? Was it the Holy Spirit? Um, or is it just like where you are in your life and your own spirit in this moment in this room? Um 
And then if if you were the opposite, if you didn't feel anything this week, I wonder why you think that is. Like, is it also because of Daniel? Because you don't like the songs he picked this week. Um, and if that's the truth and if you blame him, then that's fine. Uh, as his wife, I would love to meet you out back and talk about that later. Um, but uh, I don't know. Was it the songwriter's fault? Like you just don't like the words to any of the songs we sang or the band or maybe it was the room. It is like a little bit toasty in here um was it the style of worship that we have or, or or was it also you know if god uh can be the reason why we feel something is god also the reason why we don't or the holy spirit or uh is it just where you are in your life or your spirit right now and i want to say something um as you consider these uh questions that might not be very preachery of me um but it's this, uh, whatever your answer is, whether you felt something or didn't, it's okay. Like it, it's okay. Uh, if you felt it, you were not the only one in this room who felt the presence of God in worship this morning. Other people did too. And if you didn't, you are not the only person in the room who didn't feel anything this morning. Uh, others didn't as well. Uh, I'm not asking these questions because I think there's a correct answer to them. I'm asking these questions because I think they are really interesting ones to consider. Uh, ones worth exploring and ones worth getting curious about. Uh, we're starting a new series of talks here this week. Uh, and uh, for the next few weeks, uh, well, honestly, like uh, really till Advent, we're going to talk about uh, this exact question. Uh, it's the question that the Israelites ask at the end of our scripture lesson today. <clears throat> Is God with us? Is God with with us? Is his presence with us? It's a question that every person uh, I think interested in God asks at some point in their lives. Uh, many have asked it publicly throughout history. Uh, in the South, I think uh, many more ask it very privately, um, but we all ask it. Uh, if you never have, if you've never asked or wondered if God was really with you, um, you will. Uh, welcome to church where we share all the good news. Uh, eventually you will. It's just kind of part of being human. Uh, that That's why I think we all ask it because I think it's a very human question to ask. And so we spend, we plan to spend the next few weeks uh, looking at ways to possibly answer this question or ways to get a little bit more curious uh, about it, exploring the distance between us and God, um, trying to discover the withness of God and his people together. Uh, so to kick off this week, I want to talk about three attributes of God that I think we have uh, as a culture taken on uh, in ourselves in some sort of uh, wacky ways. Um, and these three things, I think they've impacted uh, in us the distance that we feel between ourselves and God. Uh, and I, I want you to know that I heard Rich Viotas, who's a pastor I love in Queens, uh, talk about this. And it was so, 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 so good that I just stole it. Um, and so this is a very stolen message, but I thought it was brilliant. And, and so um, I'm using a lot of his words this morning. But um, OK, so there are three words <clears throat> or three attributes that have been used throughout historical Christian tradition to describe God's nature and to describe his character. And uh, all of them start with the prefix omni, uh, which just means all. So the three words are this, God is omnipresent, omniscient, and omnipotent. So omnipresent, he is all present, omniscient, all knowing, omnipotent, all powerful. 
And while these attributes of God, uh, or these are attributes of God and his character, I think uh, that there are some cultural practices, uh, honestly, mainly technology, in our current context that have led us to take on parts of these attributes uh, on ourselves. Uh, There are so many studies about the impact of technology on us as humans. There are studies about how it impacts our culture, how it impacts our bodies, how it impacts our brains, all kinds of things. Um, But I would argue that one of the impacts of technology on us spiritually or on us uh, as human beings created in the image of God is that it has allowed or encouraged us as human beings uh, to take on parts of these three attributes of God. Uh, Here's what I mean. Technology has offered us both a gift and a mirage of being omnipresent. Uh, It makes us believe that we can be anywhere and everywhere all at the same time. Uh, For example, how many of you this week, uh, and be honest, have been watching clips from the Chiefs game last week? Uh, We don't have many Chiefs fans in the room now that Chad has moved to Atlanta, but uh, we do have some Swifties in here and y'all live for a glimpse of Taylor. And so uh, technology can do that. It can transport you to Kansas City to a press box uh, like five days or however many days after the game happened and you can be there. Uh, We can be wherever we want to be in a matter of seconds, at least virtually uh, by the click of a button. Uh, Google Earth, it lets you see in alarming detail the seven wonders of the world and also your neighbor's car in their own driveway. Uh, Your ring camera lets you see your Amazon delivery while you're sitting at your desk at work. Uh, In one glance of an online newspaper on the same day at the same time, uh, we can be, this was one day last week, uh, we could be at the Republican primary debates, uh, the floods in New York City, and the fire that happened at the wedding in Iraq all at the same time. Uh, Technology has offered us a virtual form of omnipresence. But the key word there is virtual. Uh, Rich Viota says that uh, this gives us an illusion that we can live everywhere at the same time without the risk of being crushed by the reality of that kind of scatteredness. Uh, Because that's a risk to be everywhere all at once would scatter and separate a soul, a human soul. And some of you know that some of you know, uh, some of us know that there is a crushing pressure to even a virtual form of omnipresence. It can be too much to be anywhere and everywhere all at once. Uh, Next, I think that technology has offered us some sort of uh, version of omniscience. It's given us a gift and, again, a mirage of the ability to know pretty much anything that we ever want to know. Uh, We can devour information about uh, quite literally anything that we're interested in, Uh, from the Roman Empire to how to get slime from the dollar store out of your child's hair, uh, autobiographical. Um, And listen, this is one. I'm not hating on technology. This is one of my favorite parts of being alive today. I am a very curious cat. And so the fact that I can learn whatever I want, whenever I want about whatever I want, uh, is so very interesting to me. Like from my Google searches alone, I have become, (laughs) I have become an armchair expert this week, uh, on the following things, uh, Honda CRVs from the year 2010 to around 2015, um, sprint workouts to increase your VO2 max on an elliptical machine. Haven't done one this week, uh, have researched and become 
an expert on them. And uh, the life and death of NXS singer Michael Hutchins, his girlfriend Polly Yates, and their daughter Tiger Lily. Uh, am I a big fan of NXS? I am not. Uh, but you wouldn't know that from the hour or honestly hours I spent deep diving into this man's life solely based on the fact that I found out he had a daughter named Tiger Lily and I needed to know more. Uh, that is the only reason. Uh, the gift of knowledge around us is remarkable. And it is extraordinary. Uh, but just like the gift of being everywhere and anywhere all at once, it also comes with pressure. It is a heavy burden to have access to so much knowledge. Uh, and then third, uh, I think that technology, and this one uh, in particular is probably more of a social media thing, um, but it has offered us a form of omnipotence. Uh, here's what I mean. Social media has given us a weighty authority with words and with pictures. It's given us an audience and access to a keyboard. And then on some places, you can actually even put music behind it so you can add like a little extra oomph to whatever it is you want to show or whatever it is you want to say. Uh, it's given every one of us who uses it platforms to perform or to inform. Uh, legitimately yesterday, uh, <laughs> I shared a story on Instagram about a man being indicted and charged with Tupac Shakur's murder. Uh, Tupac was murdered almost 30 years ago and there have, no one has been arrested, uh, ever in like 26 years of this case, no one's been arrested. And there was a big break in the case over the summer. And I wish I was kidding, but when I shared the story that, uh, someone had been arrested, there was some part of me that thought it might kind of be helpful to the investigation team. Like, um, I don't know, some FBI, uh, agent from Las Vegas is going to call a 40 year old white woman in East Tennessee who shared on her Instagram story and just say like, thank you. Like, thank you for helping us in uh, this case. Uh, and so just, you know, for anyone listening, if you have any information about Tupac Shakur's murder, please call the FBI in Las Vegas or DM me. Um, that is the reality of the kind of platform social media has given us. It is a platform to know and be known, uh, often in a very curated way. Uh, it's the, the power of information. To, we can hold information and intimacy and vulnerability, and we can dangle it in front of all of our followers. And I don't know about you, uh, but for me, the pressure of that can be really overwhelming. Uh, it is hard to know when and what to weigh in on and then uh, to try to pick the most perfect words to say. Uh, it's hard for me to know the line between activism and like performative activism, uh, to know what information is for everyone or what information should only be for some people. Um, do you remember 2020 when like we all had to become authorities on complete like so many things? We had to become authorities on a completely brand new and unknown virus. Uh, on homeschooling children, and that it didn't matter if you had children or not, you still were expected to become an expert on homeschooling them. Um, an economic shutdown, racial unrest. We were supposed to be experts on voting law and practices in all 50 states, but especially like six important ones. And I'm just hitting the big, huge, super big ones of 2020. But here's what we saw uh, our humanity crumbles under that kind of pressure. Our humanity cannot sustain that kind of platform or that kind of authority or that kind of expertism. 
Uh, in today's context, many of our, our lives, uh, many of us live our lives with attributes that are meant only for God. Uh, it has never in human history been possible for one human person to be everywhere always. That is impossible. It would destroy the human in us. Uh, it has never been the expectation for one human person to know everything. That weight would crush us. And it has never been possible for a human person to carry all authority, whether benevolent or narcissistic. Our humanity cannot sustain that kind of pressure or that kind of power or that kind of authority. Uh, but according to the way I read the scriptures, uh, God carries all of these. Like he is somehow everywhere all at once. Uh, Proverbs 3 says that his eyes are in every single place. Uh, and he is somehow all-knowing. Uh, Hebrews 4 says that all things are open and bare before, bare before him, uh, known by him. And uh, this is the most confusing one to me. He holds all power and authority. In Luke 1, uh, the angel tells Mary that nothing is impossible for God, that there is nothing on earth that is outside of his power, outside of his authority. Uh, I think one of the problems with our current age taking on characteristics uh, that are solely that solely belong to God is that we start to believe that these characteristics work out in God the same way they do in us. And so uh, what we see is that our omnipresence has human boundaries, as does our all knowing and our omnipotence. And I think we tend to put on God something that God does not have. And that is the limits of humanity. It's what the Israelites do in our scripture today. In our story, we find the Israelites in the wilderness and they have a problem. Uh, they're faced with one of the great realities of humanity, thirst. Uh, we all get thirsty, right? And, and, and it's, uh, they find that it's not a need that they can meet on their own. And so a very, uh, it, they reach a very human limit. They reach the human limit of their ability to meet the need. And that then becomes a panic inside them. And so they get mad at Moses uh, because he has the most authority among them. And they uh, come to him and they're like, why'd you bring us out here? Did you bring us out to kill us by, you know, not giving us water? Uh, that's how I felt on many a hiking trip. And my family is like, Daniel, this is longer than I think it was supposed to be. And are you, did you bring me out here to kill me? Um, but, uh, but they're asking that question. And then they ask the next question. Is God even with us? Like, did you bring us out to kill us? And is God even with us? Uh, for the Israelites in the wilderness, the limit of their own humanity uh, eventually causes them to doubt the character and the nature of God. Uh, it seems to me uh, that, that they, like me, seem to allow the circumstances in their life in a single moment to be the interpreter of God's character. And in doing this, he seems to be totally absent because they're thirsty and that's unprovided for. So he must be gone which I think is an interesting take uh, because at this point in the story, God has rescued these people over and over and over and over again. Uh, he rescued them from the plagues in Egypt, from like blood in the water and all kinds of creatures from frogs to locusts to flies to boils on skin and uh, this crazy hail and darkness. There's, there are more. Uh, he saved their firstborn sons. He then rescues them as an entire people out, uh, away from their Egyptian oppressors. And uh, part of the way he does that is they, as they run from Egypt, they uh, get to a sea that he then splits and allows them to walk through and then closes it in uh, on their enemies. Uh, then when they get to the wilderness on the other side, 
side of the sea. He follows them around during the day as a cloud and at nighttime as a pillar of fire, uh, just to give them evidence that his presence is always with them, that, that they have not been abandoned. And then the chapter, these are the first 16 chapters of Exodus. And then the chapter before this one, chapter 16, uh, they are hungry and they're complaining very similarly as they do to their thirst. And so God covers the ground at night uh, or in the evening with quail everywhere, birds for them to eat. And then when they go to bed, they wake up the next morning and the ground is covered with bread that he sent down from heaven like rain covering their whole land. Uh, These are the things that God has just done in their lives. And then here in chapter 17, they're thirsty. And despite God's faithfulness for the last 17 chapters, and despite God's presence and withness in their lives, they get parched and they get angry. I don't know what the term hangry is for thirsty. Uh, maybe it's thangry. I don't know. Um, but uh, in their anger, they can only see what is before them. A thirst that is bad enough that it feels like death. And so they cry out, is God even with us? Is the God who rescued us from slavery and oppression with us? Is the God who split the sea for us with us? Is the God who has shown us his presence in clouds and fire every single day with us? And is the God of the quail and the God of the manna with us because we're thirsty? Uh, A theologian I adore uh, is named Campbell Morgan. Uh, I'm very partial to the name Campbell. Um, He says this. He says, it is an arresting and important fact that a present darkness will make men forget the clear light of the past. And an imminent danger renders us unconscious of previous deliverance. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but as judgmental as I want to be uh, to a group of whiny and thirsty people, uh, I actually relate to them a little more than I'm comfortable with. Uh, and I'm guessing you can too. Uh, I can relate to the present darkness of my life causing me to forget the light of the past. And we can relate to imminent danger leaving us unconscious of how we have been delivered in the past. Uh, You and I, we have doubted or questioned God's realness or presence uh, for far less than thirst. Uh, I don't say this to shame us. Uh, If you hear that, I I don't think you're hearing me right. I, I don't say this to shame us. I say it to remind us of our humanity. We do this. We question God's presence because we are not everywhere. We can only truly be here in the exact place that we are. And we question because we do not know everything. We can't know what we don't know. And we uh, do not have all power or authority. We are human. And according to what I know of the scriptures, humans panic and they get scared and they forget. And I have this hunch that we think that sometimes God does the same thing. We think that he panics and fears and forgets. And we, I think, have a tendency to think that he has the same limits that we do. And so we ask a very human question to God. God, are you even with us? I think it's important that we look at how God responds to the Israelite because I have the Israelites because I have a hunch he does something similar for us. Uh, So when the Israelites uh, panic and forget and cry out in loneliness and thirst and unbelief, what does God do? Uh, Does he hide his presence from them or forget his people? Or does he submit his power or authority to someone else? Like, I can't handle this anymore, so I'm going to give it over to somebody else. Uh, No, 
the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent God of Israel responds to a human moment in a very godly way. I think it's important in reading this story to see that God doesn't withhold his care for his people because of their humanity. Uh, did you catch what he did? Uh, Moses, Moses comes to him and uh, is kind of setting himself above the thirsty people. He comes to him like, God, these guys. Like, I mean, what are we going to do with these guys? They're panicking and they're blaming me and they're blaming you. And he's like, what are we going to do with them? And what does God do? Does he stop being God? No. Does he shame them into submission? No. Does he withhold from them the one thing that they want and need, water? No. He tells Moses, well, if they're thirsty, give them water. And then he creates a plan. He says, strike the rock and my presence will come and water will gush out and there will be plenty to drink. He doesn't shame their humanity. He, he meets it. He meets it. A few chapters earlier, uh, God's people were crying out to be rescued another time, one of the times that we talked about. And Exodus 2 tells us this. It says, the Israelites groaned and cried out. They cried out for help. Uh, their cry out for help rose up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant. And God looked upon the Israelites and took notice of them. What does God do when his people cry out and wonder where he is? He hears them, he remembers them, and he takes notice of them. He doesn't shame them or forget them. He meets them over and over and over again. And I don't know who needs to hear this today, uh, but you have been heard by the God who is everywhere all at once. And though sometimes it's hard to remember the good things uh, in your own life, you have not been forgotten, but tenderly remembered by the God who knows all things. And the God who has all power and authority has taken notice of you. He has taken notice of your groans and your cries and your humanity, and he has met you in those things. And so here's what I want to do this morning. Uh, we take a quiet moment at this point in the service every single week. Uh, we call it Selah. It's a word we stole from the Psalms that essentially means like a intentional breath uh, or, or rest. Um, and I want to kind of think through what we've talked about this morning and, and, and think through these questions. And, and here's what I know. In my experience, uh, this is a safe place to fill God's, God's uh, presence. It is a safe place. This room is a safe place to experience his comfort and his conviction. And this is a safe place to not. It's a safe place to question and to struggle and to wonder if God is with us at all. Uh, and so I really don't want to boss this time around uh, too much other than to ask you to spend a few minutes there, wherever it is that you are, whether you are experiencing the presence of God or crying out in the distance or somewhere right in the middle of the two. Uh, and then only from where you truly are, uh, would you dare to ask this question uh, with us this morning, but also over the next few weeks, would you dare to ask God, God, are you even with us? Uh, and would you consider allowing God to meet you there and to answer that question for you? So uh, I'm going to pray and bless this time for you. Uh, so Father, uh, I ask,
ask that you would be near to the questions of your people. I pray that in our humanity that um, we would not fear being forgotten, um, but would instead uh, feel your remembering of us. And I pray uh, in the next few minutes that you would give us space and courage to dare to ask uh, if you are near. Would you bring to mind um, uh, the, the moments of light that we forget in our present darkness of uh, your presence and nearness with us? Uh, and I pray that that would fill us uh, with hope, hope of who you are and a, a hope of who you'll be. In your name we pray. Amen.